I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store. Capital has never really been about fashion. It's always been about people. What We Wore was created to share the meaningful journeys that inspire me. From the designers and friends I meet on the road to the men and women with whom I work each day. Everybody wants to know her Nellie Parto is a champion boxer and a talented fashion designer. She's trained at Parsons School of Design and worked with Calvin Klein and John Varvatos, but she said boxing has taught her the most about business. There is so much to learn from Nellie about resilience and perseverance through hard times. Nellie Parto, I am so excited to be talking to you. You are in Manhattan and I'm in Charlotte. The last time you were in Charlotte, Nellie, you taught me how to box. Yes. In that vein, we've we've been talking a lot about resilience and the quality of resilience in our team right now. And I know this is something that you particularly embody. Will you tell listeners where you're from? I'm originally from Laguna Beach, California, and I've mm-hmm. been living in New York City for 18 years now. You were almost born in Iran. You're Persian. Yeah, I'm Persian. My heritage is Persian. Both my parents are were originally from Iran. And tell me the story of how they got to Southern California. My dad had actually gone to school. He went to high school on the West Coast. You know, back back then it was really common for um, kids, especially in Iran, like education was such a big part of, you know, the culture. And my grandparents had really kind of ensued on my um, parents until they were Probably in their, I would say, mid-20s after they had graduated, they came back to Iran for a few years because their families were there, and that's where they met. And then, of course, the revolution took place in 1979, which is, you know, my dad's father had worked for the previous uh, Shah of Iran. So Mm -hmm. during that time, it was, for those who were alive at the time and remember, it was a very kind of trying time in the history of Iran. And and the history of America as well. And mm. and they had to flee the country because they were, you know, my grandfather, um, he was seven years retired at the time, but the regime that took over was pretty extreme. And so unfortunately, they had to flee the country um, for their safety. And at that time, you know, the government had pretty much taken everything from them, their homes, they froze their bank accounts. I mean, just, you know, it's funny going through this time right now, you really look back on life and, and you think, you know, about the kind of trials and tribulations that human beings go through. And they're, they're pretty incredible human beings. I've I've been very lucky to have two very strong parents that have such an incredible outlook on life. And so then, you know, they came to uh, the States and dad had taken my his younger brother and sister to um, LA and he got out of the country with his father and just hearing their stories. I mean, honestly, it's like something out of a film when you really listen to it. And your mom was pregnant with you at the time? My mom was pregnant with me at the time. So I was, you know, months away from being born in Iran and probably living a very different life. Yeah. So she had me when she came to the States and, uh, I think about I'm 
older than her at that time. And I can't imagine, you know, the stress of being pregnant, coming to a new country, uprooting your entire life and having, you know, your own country that was such a different world, you know, prior to 79, just in complete upheaval. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the older I get, the more I appreciate and respect what they went through and and what my grandfather went through, because he was in his 60s at the time. So can't imagine trying to learn a new language in your 60s, moving to a new country. I know your dad is a a huge mentor for you. Can you tell me about him and, and his business and sort of how he started his new life? You know, he was in his late 20s, early 30s during the revolution. I think he was 30 or 31, if I'm not mistaken. When he came to the States, everything was kind of taken away from him. He had, I think, $10,000 to start a company. And the company that he started, which is so interesting, you know, Vespa, the scooters, the ones that you see yeah. all over Italy? I have one. Oh, amazing. (laughs) Well, um, my dad was basically one of the, well, he started a Vespa dealership in the early 80s. And he basically ended up being the biggest Vespa dealer in the world. Um, (laughs) Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, great great place to have the dealership. Oh, my gosh. I mean, he brought basically Vespa to the U.S. (laughs) And he was telling me a story the other day that I think like the largest, you know, Vespa dealer in the in Italy was selling, I think, 200 at the time a month. And they were selling something or a year. I can't remember exactly. But and they were selling 14,000. And I kept asking, like, <laughs> who in Southern California was riding around in Vespas? But, um, <laughs> but it was interesting because he was telling me the gas prices in 1979, you know, with skyrocketing. And then Yamaha approached him, which was another, you know, kind of motorcycle dealer. And he I mean, he became, I think, within a year, the number one dealer in America for Yamaha. And then when I was two, my parents ended up going to Hawaii uh, on a trip. And my dad saw a jet ski for this first time. And that that was something new at that time. There was, you know, uh-huh. kind of come on the market. He just fell in love with it. So he contacted Kawasaki, which was one of the dealers at the time. And he started selling jet skis. And then from there, it was like anything he touched, he was really incredible at building. And that led him to yachts, which was, you know, his main kind of business as he kind of went through the years. And he was uh, one of the largest yacht dealers in the world, and he was selling this brand called Azimut, which is an Italian brand. And I guess if you know we look at it compared to the car world, it would be kind of you know your I guess like your Mercedes or your BMW or you know they, it was a luxury Italian boat company that you know he just he loved and so built it for forty years and has since retired. But, you know, for me, he set such an incredible example of anything is possible, right? And but also, I guess, lived through many ups and downs of the economy, and I'm sure has a lot of advice about the, the pandemic, I would imagine. Not only the pandemic, he also gave me a lot of perspective about pandemic compared to revolution. He was like, listen, no one's trying to kill you. You can sit and watch Netflix. Like, this will pass. It also gave me a little bit more perspective into understanding what they went through on such a mm-hmm. small, you know, scale in comparison. But it gave me, an, again, another greater sense of appreciation because as business owners, we all know this is not an easy time to navigate. And 
And so, you know, it kind of puts, and, and nothing's been taken away. I kept thinking to myself, I still have my home. I still have my business. I still, you know, and to think that that was all taken away. And then on top of it being pregnant, that's got to be, I can't imagine the pressure at that time. And then they were young, you know, they were yeah in their late 20s, early 30s. It's given me a lot more respect and appreciation for what they experienced to be, to be completely honest with you about it. Yeah. You said that you've always wanted to be a fashion designer. Yeah, it's funny. I was one of those young ones that always knew what I wanted to do. I grew up in the 90s watching all those, you know, kind of Canadian and American shows on TV, (laughs) interviewing Gianni Versace and, you know, Yves Saint Laurent and all these incredible designers and Todd Oldham at the time. And and there was just such a magical moment. And now looking back, I mean, it was a historical moment in our industry that was transpiring. But I just fell in love with it. It was the only thing I was fixated on. And so from a young age, I used to tell my parents, like, you know, I'm going to be a fashion designer. And, you know, can you imagine a 10-year-old kid telling you that you Whatever you want. But your dad encouraged you to go to business school first. I think that was a caveat for him. And he was saying, you know, I, I listen, no matter what you do in life. I mean, he was such an entrepreneur. And he said, you know, even if you want to do design, you have to understand the business. Especially, I think, because he was, you know, an entrepreneur. He wanted me to really have a 360 perspective and not just just purely design, which... I wish, I wish all designers would do that. <laughs> It was the best thing I did, and it helped significantly. And then after mm-hmm. I got a business degree, I went to Parsons for design. And that's where, you know, kind of I pursued my design kind of schooling career. And and did it always feel natural and from from the start? Yeah, in terms of the passion, yes. It was funny, though. I realized design school was no joke. I mean, Parsons, I remember 50% of the class dropping out. And it, it right away made me realize this this is n- an industry that is really no joke. It's no different than boxing in a lot of ways. You know, it really does require just blood, sweat and tears. And but it's worth it in the end. You know, when you love something so much and you're so passionate about it, it doesn't feel like work. But it is definitely not an industry for the faint of heart, no matter what you are in. Um, that's for sure. I love that you say you talk about your dad being in your corner and it does kind of all come back to boxing, maybe in a weird way. <laughs> you started boxing when you were 14 years old. Will you talk to me about it? You know, it's funny. I always loved doing different sports when I was younger, but I hated going to the gym. And so I remember, you know, I was 14 and I was walking past this boxing studio, this kind of fighting studio. And what looked to me to be a cardio class. So I kind of convinced my mom to sign me up for it, not knowing in <laughs> retrospect that it was actually Team USA's doors. And and the head trainer within, I think it was within the first three months, pulled me aside and said, you know, you have what it takes to fight. You should become a fighter. And I started laughing. And were there girls in that class, Nellie? There was a few girls, but it was, I would say a 80-20 split. It was 80% guys and maybe 20% women. You know, I thought it was crazy. The idea of getting punched in the face did not seem uh, interesting (laughs) to me. I used to 
remember growing up with, you know, of the era of Mike Tyson and Holyfield and it never appealed to me, yeah. you know, and, <laughs> and for whatever reason, you know, they had these things, you know, they were called smokers and there were these live fights that a lot of the boxing gyms would kind of throw on as they were training fighters to, you know, get into kind of a bigger arena. And it was kind of their introductory into the competitive world. And I remember going to one and just, I completely fell in love. I don't know what it was that triggered it. And I thought, I want to do this. And so I somehow convinced my parents to let me do it after a lot of mom's <laughs> resistance. I didn't even understand why I was so interested in the sport. And I honestly, at the time, didn't get it, you know? And I was really lucky. I, I fought, I had 32 fights. 30 of them I won. I got to fight in Madison Square Garden in New York while I was working for That's insane. Calvin Klein. My whole Calvin Klein team came to my fight at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I was actually thinking about it last night before talking to you that, you know, I mean, the sport for me just taught me so much about life, probably more about business than all my years combined working for other design houses and in what way? Like, tell, tell me what. The message that my trainer was trying to tell me going back to whether you have what it takes to fight is kind of fight or flight, right? So if you get hit, you yeah. do you turn or are you present and focused and you kind of stand your yeah. ground and which is something they say you either have, it's not taught, it's like within you. And I think maybe this gene was passed down for my parents from all the, you know, experiences that they had, but I just never turned my head. I, you know, I stood there and I got back up and training for fights is not an easy thing. You, you spend hours. I was training seven days a week and mind you, I was still pursuing my dream to be, you know, a designer. So I was also going to Parsons, which, you know, we would leave school sometimes at two in the morning finishing projects and, and I'd have to train in between to prepare for fights. And so it really taught me a lot about just dedication and really going for it. And mm -hmm. I remember being in Madison Square Garden in one of the early years that I had moved to New York. And I remember thinking, I really want to fight here. I really would love to be in this space. And it was so exciting watching other fighters at the time. And, and you work hard. And trust me, there was plenty of broken noses and, you know, again, blood, sweat and tears. But it was exactly what I was, you know, kind of paralleling with fashion at the time. And, you know, it was not easy. It was yeah. a, an industry, especially for designers, that's extraordinarily competitive. And But if you love something, you know, you, you just gotta go for it no matter what anyone tells you or anyone says and against all odds and so it it's taught me a lot and especially because I started the business with no investors you know and at the time everyone thought you're crazy it was this was now 10 years ago everyone was saying you need a minimum of half a million or a million to start a fashion brand and you know ignorance is bliss right so <laughs> um, ignored what everyone said but I think it was just that kind of perseverance that I learned in boxing of never giving up and kind of pushing through that kept me motivated and and, and driving forward no matter you know how hard or what obstacles I was kind of up against 
you had a another mentor, boxing mentor, Francisco Mendez, who recently passed away from um, COVID-19. Yeah. Can you tell me about him and lessons that you learned from I mean, him? Francisco was just the most incredible human being. I mean, even his story alone, he was from Mexico and worked a bunch of odd jobs to start a, a boxing gym in New York. And it was, it was one of those boxing gyms that, you know, there's few and far between. They're true gritty. He just, he built a, a place where, you know, for fighters, it be it's a second home. It's really, I, it's hard to put into words, but it's a place where you just, it's not a normal, you know, kind of atmosphere. And I think a lot of athletes can probably relate to this, but you just feel like you're in a second home that was created with friends that you've known for years. I mean, there's trainers that I've known for now 20 years in these gyms and you, they all stay, you know, and, and he created an environment for that to live. I remember seeing him and his wife, like from the very beginning, just building the gym and creating an environment where, you know, we would all come after work or come after whether it was younger kind of generation coming after school and just created this incredible environment that I respected so much. And so, you know, we're, we're all going to keep going to his gym and supporting his family and, and his vision and the dream that he kind of ensued and this place that he created for so many of us that, that, you know, I have such a great deal of respect for. And especially as a business owner, I know it's not easy for him to have run built a gym of that size and nature in Manhattan and, you know, on, well, I'm so sorry. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. He's got an incredible family. So I know he is, he's going to be looking after the gym. So after Parsons, you went to work straight for Calvin Klein? Yes. While I was at Parsons, I was doing an internship with Donna Karen, which was really incredible. I actually met Donna Karen when I was in college. I was actually in business school. <laughs> I got an opportunity to ask her a question. This is a funny story because she came out with a fragrance. I wasn't too excited about the actual smell of this fragrance, but I bought it anyway. <laughs> and I stood in line, you know, to meet her so I could ask her a question. I wanted to know, you know, at that time while I was in business school, what she thought I should do to kind of get prepared for this dream that I had of, you know, having a brand and designing. And her piece of advice to me was, work as much retail as you can because you're going to learn about your customer. That's that's incredible it advice. It was one of the best pieces of advice I've received. And <laughs> and I was doing it at the time. I was actually working in a retail store. You learn so much just about the way that people interact in the shop and, and what they're looking for. And, and honestly, the psychology. And so it was mm-hmm. really an incredible piece of advice that I didn't anticipate. So I really appreciated that, that she gave me that. And then I ended up interning for her while I was in um, Parsons. And Calvin for me was a company that I just had so much respect and love for. And I mean, I'm a minimalist. My, you know, Parsons (laughs) final graduate pieces were, you know, everyone in my class had these beautiful elaborate gowns and mine was a a white suit. So (laughs) I kind of fit in with the Calvin world. It was amazing. And I had the privilege of working with some incredible designers. And it was it was something that, you know, I was lucky because it was a small team. So usually you get 
pigeonholed in design where you get to work on either just, you know, your knits and sweaters categories or you're a wovens designer. And I was exposed mm-hmm. to both and had the privilege of working with both teams. And then, you know, always women's wear, always women's until John Barbados. But I was always doing women's and then then I wanted to do menswear and I had this opportunity to go to John Barbados. And so that was my next move. And and John was amazing because, you know, he was so hands-on with the business and he had a very strong identity in terms of, you know, who his brand yeah. was, who he dressed. I mean, you would walk into the studio and it was the world of Barbados from the music <laughs> to, you know, and, you know, listening to these amazing, you know, musicians from the 60s and 70s and current time. And, you know, so it was, you kind of got this whole 360, which was obviously very different from, you know, the world of Calvin, <laughs> like, you know, the, the late 90s, early 2000s with, you know, such an incredible time in, in the world of Calvin. And then, and then you come into this kind of rock and roll history and, he himself had worked for Calvin and, you know, so there was this incredible, yeah. you know, team there. And I loved, you know, the, the passion he had for the business and for the brand. And, and there was a real strong DNA that I really respected. And, and I think that's a really important thing to know as a designer and as, as an individual, really what, who you are and what you're good at and what, what is kind of your your contribution, so to speak, in in terms of what you're adding to to the matrix in the world. I learned so much also about the business because it was a smaller mm-hmm. company, obviously, than Calvin, but he was scaling so quickly. And just to be yeah. there during that time and see what was happening internally and, and just also being exposed to the business side and the other components that I knew were going to be critical pieces of knowledge that I was going to need to be able to run the business. So was that the impetus to open your own business? You went straight from Barbados? Yeah. You know, I was going to leave Calvin and start the brand. And then an opportunity came at Barbados that, you know, I, I, I was honestly only supposed to be there for a short term and then it ended up being a little bit longer than I anticipated because <laughs> I, I really just loved his team. And I knew at a certain point, if I didn't do it, I was going to get comfortable in all these amazing brands that I got to work for. And it was my dream. I'll never forget. I had was standing, I think, in the garment district on, was, I remember the corner. I was standing on 38th and and I was on the phone with my dad and he was, you know, the one that kind of nudged me to jump in the deep end and said, you know, if you're going to do it, go for it, you know, just do it. It'll work out. It's going to be fine, but you have to just, you know, take that first leap of faith and go for it. And I remember in that moment, just thinking to myself, okay, I got to figure out how much money do I need to make to live and, you know, and, <laughs> and let me think, how can I make this happen and, and start the business? And, and it was a snowball effect. And that's where it all kind of started from that conversation on 38th and 8th. And you've been in business 10 years. I've been in business for 10 years. And it's really been an amazing journey. And, and the people we get to work with and even, you know, getting to work with incredible talent like Camilla Nickerson and you know, the photographers that we get to work with. And I mean, there's so many other creatives that I've been so fortunate to have the experience to 
uh, work with on our own brand that has been really inspiring for me. And that's been a real beauty and being able to kind of have that creative freedom with, with the brand. I think the thing that is so interesting from talking to designers and learning about their stories is that everybody comes from these different backgrounds of all different jobs and careers and they come, they all end up, you know, funneling into this and that you realize that nothing is wasted. um, Nothing is a mistake. It's all leading up to this moment. Oh, I agree. You know, and I think when you're young, you feel like you want that one thing, you know, you, you think that you're supposed to have it, I guess, right then. And it does take years and years and different experiences to become what you really want it to be. It's so true. And I think that's the hardest thing. You know, you grow up wanting something or seeing something that you feel like, you know, and you forget you have to learn to crawl before you can walk, before you can run. And (laughs) and one of the biggest things that I've tried to kind of, you know, remind myself and, and, you know, definitely forget from time to time is, you know, you really do have to enjoy the journey. You really have to kind of savor it. And, and as you said, even the mistakes are not mistakes, you know, back to boxing, the biggest lessons I learned were, were the fights that I lost, you know, you learn so much Mm -hmm. from those, you know, more so than the ones you won. So absolutely. It's not an easy thing to remember, but, you know, kind of in this moment with everything happening with COVID, in a sense, with regards to business, it was a blessing in disguise. And, and we may not know the answers to it all right in this moment, but it, it will it will for sure reveal itself. Well, and I also think that it is like boxing. I mean, and, and like 2008 for us, too, is like it really is a fight or flight, you know, it's sort of. You either, you either stay for the fight or you give up. I think all entrepreneurs have that gut. There's difficult times, but you just get back up and you you figure out a new path and you figure out a way. I want to get back to fashion and your business. And I want to tell you that we reopened on Saturday and it was really emotional, but it was exciting. But one of the things that really struck me was how beautiful your clothes look in the store and how relevant and happy and the colors are so beautiful uh, now more than ever your clean lines and and your wearability is important what have you been wearing during the quarantine (laughs) you know I'll be honest with you New York has gone through such a weird weather pattern between it being spring and I know know, storming I mean snow snow over the weekend and today is going to be 60 you know I've been fluctuating and a lot of my knitwear, I've definitely been living in. A lot of the hand knits, you know, these kind of, you know, beautiful kind of artisan knits that my hand knitters work so hard on. Which Your knits are oh, so beautiful. Thank you. They, I, I really, I love the women who work on them. And, you know, they spend 80 to 200 hours making each piece. And so they're, they're, there's a lot of love that goes into them and I want to support their craft as well because it is a dying craft, unfortunately, in our business. And But that's what I've been living in. Has it changed the way you've been designing for future collections? What do you think people will want to wear? I mean, have, has that changed the way you've thought about where people will be wearing things and what Absolutely. they want to put on? I think that life has changed, you know, dramatically. And yeah. so I think it's our job in a sense as creatives to whether you're in fashion or art, music, any creative, you know, film field, um, which is so much of what we've been relying on during this time. You know, I think we've all been listening to music and watching incredible films. And, you know, that world just 
in times especially of difficulty creates a beauty and a joy in life. And so as I'm starting to design the next collection, you know, my intention is to keep that energy of, of joy and, and finding pieces that you really covet and that, and that you want to keep. And I really have always believed that editing and that less is more in so many ways and to invest in pieces that you really love. The garment inspires so much more than just a piece of clothing or, you know, I think it really kind of, you think about it on a broader perspective, it inspires, you know, a piece of your future or how you see yourself or where you're going. And that's something that I, I really love about what we do and, and kind of getting to create that that energy and that excitement about just living life, whether it's on a new job or on a day, just day-to-day life, you know, and just feeling good what you're wearing. Yeah. And so that's something that I love about what we do and I'm sure resonates so closely with you as well. Yeah, for sure. And and also just the realities of Zoom calls oh, and working from home. I mean, just the comfort of fabrics and I mean, all the things, you know, I think about it all day oh. long. Also, one of the things, just how cold it is being it inside your home all the time. True. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've worn more sweaters than I've ever worn in my life. It's same, so strange. Same. That's funny. I didn't even think about that. I've been layering with about three sweaters a day. And I mean, you know, when it's 60 degrees, it's chilly inside. We really rarely sell sweaters here because it's so humid. And so I've, I have thought differently about that. <laughs> but I do really think that we've all thought about ourselves in a different way and, and especially our businesses. Can you tell me what you've learned about yourself during the pandemic? I think it kind of comes full circle back to the fighter in me. I just, I remember, you know, week one in New York when, it, especially in New York City, and everybody was kind of anxious and fearful and there was so much unknown. And in all honesty, uh, I, I tried to remember what it was like to start the company leading outside of what happened in 2008 with the economic crash and and how difficult it was to start a business following that. I realized this is something that is going to be day by day and it's okay to not know what the future holds and but everything will work out. Unfortunately, the health crisis is, you know, another difficult conversation and sad conversation in itself. But in relation to business, there has been a lot of silver linings, in my opinion. Um, And just being able to slow down. I think we were going so fast in in my business and in the industry. And there's something nice to be able to reflect upon what you're doing and what how you want to live within what you do as well. Isn't that crazy that that's a change, like that we weren't doing that? I mean, absolutely. I think once you got on this momentum of just go, 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 go. And I know you and I would always joke about this in Paris during market. It was too much, you know? And how do you spend time with your family or your loved ones? Or, I mean, even from a creative standpoint, it's so hard to just move that fast and then create something really beautiful and thoughtful. Just the ability to reflect is, I mean, to, to be able to do that for the first time in, I feel like in 20 years. I agree with you. And it also, I think really teaches you about people and who you have around you. And I I feel very lucky with the team that I have. And, you know, it, it just also, you know, kind of shows you in times of difficulty, 
who shows up for you and, and who you get to show up for. And so there's a real beauty in that as well. One of the things that we ask at the end of every podcast and people really seem to like is, um, what did you wear to the prom? I can't wait to hear what you wore in Laguna Beach. You're going to laugh, but I took my car. I wasn't allowed to drive further than a certain you know range. So I snuck outside <laughs> of the range and drove to LA. Oh my God. <laughs> so I drove to LA. I don't even think my mom knows the story. So it was about like an hour drive from Laguna Beach. And uh, went to all these vintage shops that used to be on Melrose and found this, you know, white kind of crepe slip dress. There was this, you know, of course, very kind of 90s minimalistic. And that's what I wore. <laughs> I paid $300 for it. And, you know. <laughs> Shoes, jewelry. Do you remember any of that? I actually wore flowers in my hair. I kind of did like love um, arrangement in my head <laughs> which and then jewelry I had uh one of those cuffs around you know your biceps you know those like 70s so I used to be able to <laughs> squeeze a cuff how beautiful I fun. love it look that that was a great question I haven't thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that in the first spring 2021 yeah, right? the new inspiration <laughs> Thank you, Nellie, so much. I love talking to you. So nice to, you know, chat with you. And thank you so much for just giving me the opportunity and taking the time to hear a little bit about my story. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.